welcome to Mostly Books Meets. I'm Sarah. I'm Imogen. And I'm Lindsay. And together we are the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life. And we hope you'll join us for the journey. Hi, it's Sarah. This week I'm speaking to Managing Director of the Booksellers Association, Merrill Halls. The BA is the trade body which promotes retail bookselling in the UK and Ireland, and Merrill has been part of it since 1988. Her first role in the organisation was as a conference assistant. Since then, she's worked across all of the BA's major campaigns, including Books in My Bag and Independent Bookshop Week, as well as being heavily involved in their policy work. In 2018, Merrill took on the role of Managing Director and was named Future Book Person of the Year in 2020. Merrill is passionate about all aspects of the book trade. She works tirelessly for booksellers all over the country and what she does is invaluable. Merrill, welcome to Mostly Books Meets. Thanks, Sarah. That's a very sweet introduction. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be with you. Well, it's all true. I mean, I remember when I came into the book trade a few years ago and started to get to know people in the industry and I was introduced to BA really early on and yourself and as part of that. And I've just been really astounded all the way through my time in the book trade at what you guys do and how supportive you all are. That's very kind. Thank you. Well, it sounds hackneyed to say it, but I have always felt like I've got the best job in the world because booksellers are extraordinary people. And I mean, any of us that get to work in books, having loved books all our lives, I think that's a huge privilege to start with. But over the years, getting to know booksellers as, as well as I have, it feels, again, it's a, it's a slightly hackneyed thing to say, but books matter so much, and particularly at the moment, that working with the people who then run the bookshops is, yeah, it's a daily pleasure. I mean, there's some downsides, but it's a daily pleasure. Focus on the good stuff. Yeah, I've said this to quite a few people as well. I think what I was really impressed with when I moved into the book trade was actually just how nice everyone is in the book industry. It's actually very difficult to find somebody that I've met during my time in the trade that I haven't liked immediately. So it's good fun. It's a sticky trade, isn't it? And I think because I've been in the trade all my working life, it's hard to know what other industries are like. But I hear that often. I think if all of us do, it's not to say that it doesn't have its cut through elements, but I think there's things in common that drive us all. And I think we have something fairly fundamental and quite important in common if you're a book lover. Yeah. So I think that gives us a head start in that. And people are, yeah, I mean, they're incredibly mutually supportive. I mean, particularly in the book selling sector, there's never any hesitation between booksellers about helping each other out. And that's one of the really lovely things to witness when you're with them, actually. It's really impressive. Yeah, we were just reminiscing, weren't we, just before we started recording, about the fact we have an annual conference that the Booksellers Association organises for booksellers, and it's a brilliant couple of days. And obviously, it was cancelled last year. We were talking about hopefully being able to meet up and do that again soon. And that's something, like you say, those few days when we all get together, I just always find so useful because obviously we have a lot from the keynote speakers and from the breakout sessions. But for me, a lot of it is about just bumping heads with fellow booksellers and sharing information and just using that time just to help each other out really yeah and again it's one of the things I really love is watching the booksellers spark off each other and I think also there's such huge privileges around being in the world of books and because you get to meet not only the lovely people that you work alongside your colleagues but you know we're constantly in, exposed to and in touch with authors 
And, you know, some of the greatest minds at work, actually, are people who walk into the room with you at those events and stand up and talk to you. And they talk to us about our industry and they, they talk with great warmth and conviction about how important it is what we're all doing. And that's very validating. And there can't be that many industries in the world that get that sort of validation and that exposure to that level of thinking. Our daily lives, they do bring us incredible things. I am always thankful for that. Yeah, I agree. Right, let's make a start by talking about you now. Let's go right back to your childhood, if you don't mind. Where did you grow up and what was life like for you as a child? So I grew up in the Scottish borders. I grew up in a town called Gashiels. Uh, the Scottish borders is pretty underpopulated. It's a big sort of geographical area with half a dozen mill towns, really, that are scattered through that area. So it's a small town upbringing. My parents were, I guess, from working class backgrounds, but aspirational education, very important to them. They married young. They had me young. I think my mum was 21 when she had me. And reading was always part of my life. I'm in a massive part of my life. I was a, I was a bookworm. I was a very studious child, very serious child <laughs> and a very shy child, actually. When I was thinking about talking to you today, I thought about what the, the role that books played in my life. And although... I don't actually remember being read to as a young child. I clearly was. I cannot bring to mind the first book that I was read. And I can't point to that book as being particularly influential. But I do remember is that my life was full of library visits. There were books in the house, but it wasn't a a house full of books. It wasn't a sort of affluent middle class home in that sense. It was quite an ordinary home. But we went to the library all the time. And I remember my mother eventually would just send me down to get her books. I would choose her books as well as my <laughs> own. So I'd get six library tickets a week for both of us and down I'd trot to the library. And I had a physical reaction to going into that building. The excitement that built in me as I walked up the stairs, I can still feel the feeling of this really particular sort of soft linoleum that was on the staircase. I can smell it to this day. It's had such a searing impact on me that building and I just hoovered up everything that they had in that library and then my book reading became more acquisitional I guess and as I got pocket money and got a bit older and then I'd save up my pocket money and go down to John Menzies and buy Secret Seven books I think they cost 25 pence or something at that point (laughs) so it was very small town Scotland upbringing very loving family my parents are incredibly supportive of my brother and I but I guess well, not a big city life, not a life filled with culture in the way that my kids' lives were filled with culture. It was quite limited. And by the time I was conscious of it, I, it was the 70s. It was the first time I got on an aeroplane. I was 15 to go on an amazing family holiday to the States to visit my mum's brother. So, yeah, it was ordinary, really. But books were part of it right from the start. And reading for a shy child, you know, it's such an escape and such a safety net, I think. Yeah, it just takes you to a different place. Yeah. You mentioned The Secret Seven there. Was that the first set of books you remember reading or was, you remember reading something earlier than that? I mean, there's no question that Enid Blyton was definitely my first memory of reading. And I remember saving up, you know, because you do that completest thing when you're that age. Mm-hmm. I wanted to read all of them, work through them, saved up to buy them myself. Famous Five, all of them, the whole lot. St. Clair's, Mallory Towers, The Adventurous Four. I worked through them all. And I think there wasn't clearly, you know, by the time I was a young adult, there wasn't the sort of publishing that goes on now. The richness of what's available for young adults now is astonishing. And we went from Enid Blyton to Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Yeah. I mean, literally, that's what I did because there's nothing in between. It's just 
remarkable to think back on. But yeah, Enid Blyton. And then I remember reading When Hitler Stole Pink Rabbit. Mm -hmm. I remember that being the sort of first non-Enid Blyton book that just, it was a sucker punch. I loved it. And that's it of a lifelong sort of fascination with that period in history. So that was a real moment. But yeah, no question that, and I used to think, (laughs) when I was little, because you know, the books used to have her signature as her name, her author name on the cover. And I used to think she was called Gnid. I thought she was called Gnid Blyton. (laughs) How old were you when you realised it was Enid? I don't know, 10, 11. (laughs) I used to call her Gnid Blyton to myself. That's brilliant. <laughs> so with the Canid Blind books and yeah. then Hitler Stole Prince Rabbit. It's funny you mentioned the Secret Seven though, because an awful lot of people obviously we interview as part of this podcast, Enid Blyton, unsurprisingly comes up time and time again. But a lot of people have gone for the famous five. So it's nice to hear you talk about the Secret Seven because it's a different. Oh, I love them. Angle. But I'm with you. I mean, I think that they were such magical books and the fact that you had the full series and there were so many of them. It was brilliant. I've still got them. My mother still has them. I used to <laughs> deconstruct plastic <laughs> food bags and make a nice little full library cover for them to protect them I think they've still got <laughs> I, I should that. send you a picture so it sounds like you had a lovely childhood and you then went on to study at St Andrews University I did and moved to London with the intention to work in publishing I understand is that right I did yeah again I remember you know those years when you're student well not everyone is like this but I didn't know what I wanted to do and I studied English literature as so many of us did and um four-year degree in Scotland so that gave me lots of time to worry about what I didn't want to do and I remember realising as I got through my final year that I was actually going to have to make some decisions and I knew I wanted to get out of Scotland I knew I wasn't going back home and I knew I wanted to go out into the world a bit I'd gained a bit in confidence I guess by the time I was 21 not much but a bit and I remember I had an epiphany in my final year where I thought I know I love reading I love books I always have done I'm studying English literature I could work in publishing and it was like I was the first person in the world to have had that thought because <laughs> it, it was not part of my life. I didn't really know that books were a thing. Books were an industry. I didn't understand that. And so I felt like I'd had a revelation. And so I set about at that point trying to find <laughs> what that involved. Stirling University did a, an MPhil publishing studies. And I thought about going to try and do that. But I convinced myself I wouldn't get a 2-1. You needed a 2-1 to get on the postgrad course. And, and of course, I did get a 2-1, so I could have done that, but I didn't. And I came to London expressly, really, to get into publishing. But I started with a job in the civil service and came down and did that for a while. And then very quickly after that, got the starter job at the BA. So it's a real man and boy story, that career story. But I knew I wanted to work in books. And I had worked in a bookshop, actually. When I was at school, I had plucked Oh, up. really? Yeah, I had. There was a bookshop called Cover to Cover in the town where I grew up. And I'd worked in John Menzies as a Saturday girl. And then I'd, I plucked up the courage one day. I was about 15 or 16, I think, after school. I went down. It was at the bottom of the hill down from the, the school. And I walked into this tiny little bookshop and presented myself as potential Saturday girl material. Really, really shy to do this. And she clearly saw some, you know, sort of studious bookworm in there and thought I might be quite a good candidate. And so I worked there through being a student as well. I used to come home for holidays and I'd work there and they used to leave me in charge of the shop when they went on holiday. So, you know, I knew a bit about what bookselling was like. I never obviously had my own shop, but I did the hoovering and the dusting and they used to sometimes let me do reorders. And I certainly did lots of very average window displays. I (laughs) (laughs) I remember nearly knocking over a... um, we had a Welsh dresser in the window for some reason. 
and I managed to knock it over and it didn't smash the plate glass window with me in it, but it was a very close run thing. <laughs> the drama. The drama. How did you end up getting a job in the BA in the end? I just answered an ad in the Guardian newspaper. It was a tiny little ad and I thought, that sounds interesting. That sounds like that job's made for me. And I applied got the interview, never thought I would. I mean, I had a, the bookshop background, I guess, and a clear passion for the subject, but it was a starter job in an interesting industry and I thought I'd never get it, but I did. And the rest is history. And I've been there for a very long time. So was it clear once you had a foot in the door and you started working the BA, was it clear to you that you found a place that you wanted to be or did that come over time? I think it came over time. I think in the early years, I was incredibly lucky because I guess we were a bigger organisation then, inevitably, like almost every organisation, we've, we've shrunk over the years. And there'd been an intake of young women like me, I guess. There were four or five of us that started around the same time. And actually, two of them at least are lifelong friends. I mean, we had a blast. It was just, you know, we were in London. A lot of us had come to London. We were in our early 20s. You know, fantastically good fun we would have. And made fast friends, did a lot of chatting <laughs> in between times. I was organised the conference, so immediately I was into that. It's an interesting job. You're travelling the country looking at, you know, doing site visits. And But I think it probably took me a few years to realise that I was in this for the long haul. And I was incredibly lucky. I was able to move. I had, after I met my husband, we had two kids and the incredibly supportive employer to, to come back to work into that environment. And I realised very quickly that it was because it was the centre of the trade. Mm -hmm. For all that I'd come there thinking this would be a sort of stepping stone to publishing, I realised that actually I was seeing the whole industry from the middle of it. So I could look out at all of it and be part of all of it. And even when you're quite junior at the BA, you can get exposed to the same interesting people that we were talking about earlier. It just felt incredible. A very privileged position. And because of that, and it being a very nice, nourishing place to work, I guess the occasion never really occurred to leave. And I know it's very unfashionable to have stayed somewhere for so long, but um, that's what I did. It just shows that you found your place. So you mentioned earlier on that the organisation has reduced in size quite a lot over the years. I was going to ask you, you know, fast forward to, to the present day, you're now the managing director, you became managing director a couple of years ago now. Mm. How much have you seen the trade body change during your career? Hugely. I mean, particularly with the sort of accelerations and developments over the last 12 months, which have been, boy, I mean, if I'd ever thought I was going to have a challenge in this new job, I wouldn't have imagined the global pandemic. But yeah, we're a lot leaner, an organisation. I mean, as you know, we own National Bookshokens and Batch, which are their wholly owned subsidiaries, and they're fantastically valuable to bookshops and very responsive. You know, we're all pulling in the same direction. We have a smaller staff, for sure, but it's more tightly focused. And I think it's fit for purpose. I think we're very connected to our members in a way that possibly we weren't more years ago because we're closer to them. We understand their issues more. We engage with them constantly. And if the guiding principle of everything that I certainly do with my team is their benefit to booksellers. If there's no benefit to booksellers, then we just, I mean, unless you know, there are peripheral benefits clearly but if it's not going to benefit booksellers then you'd be hard-pressed to justify doing it and I think through the pandemic the fact that we were able to respond to our members in what I hope is an immediate and genuine way helped them and helped us and I think we've pulled together in a way that little did we know it but the ground was being laid for that over many years I think because of the way we were honing what we were doing. Yeah I mean people obviously won't know that outside of the trade what you have done for us 
through the last year. Um, when I say us as a, myself as a bookseller and, and my fellow booksellers. So just to kind of put it in a bit of a nutshell, basically what you guys have been doing is just support us in any way possible. And that has been even things that might be considered quite small, like you've organised get-togethers for a sort of, I guess, even download on how things are going. From a practical standpoint, you have been amazing at pulling together policy summaries for us because at the moment, with the amount of information that we've all had to consume over the last 12 months mm-hmm. in a situation we wouldn't have ever expected to, to go through, it was all really overwhelming. So what you guys have done in terms of filtering that information and gearing it specifically to us and how it benefit us has been just invaluable and I really can't emphasise that enough. What you guys have done has been amazing. Thank you. So obviously the BA have been phenomenal during the coronavirus. How has it been for you personally and you and your family? How have you all been through this? We've been good. It's been challenging. I think in common with anyone who's running any sort of team or part of an organisation, challenging. When I look back a year from now, I mean, almost exactly a year from now, at what the team and the group had to contend with. I mean, actually parts of the group. So the team at Batch have always worked remotely and Fraser, who runs that business, is, you know, he's always had his team working remotely from him. So it was much less of an impact for that part of the business. But for Book Tokens and for the BA bits of the business, we immediately had to send staff home. We were immediately faced with the challenge of managing teams and coping with the individual stresses and strains that that was putting on people in common with all other businesses. You know, we were, what were people's working conditions like at home? Were they sitting at their kitchen table? The emotional roller coaster that everyone went through, certainly in those early months, the crisis management mindset was just I mean, there was something incredibly propulsive about it. It brought energy, even in the fear. And I mean, Andy Ruster talks about this. He's our president at the moment. No one knew what was going to happen. I mean, it was terrifying because I think booksellers thought they were facing an abyss. And we didn't know how long this was going to last or what we should be doing to help. And so it took weeks to calibrate what it was we were doing. But really, when I look back on it, it's extraordinary how well everyone reacted and how the responses that the individuals in the team made and that our membership made. And I think that was one of the driving forces for us was to watch what booksellers were doing, whose businesses were on the line, whose livelihoods were on the line, to watch them be brave and watch them step into what needed to be done. And so all we could do was to help put the ground under your feet. I mean, it was almost like we were building the road as we stepped onto it, wasn't it? It was just, Mm. and on we went, and on we went. And then we all started to realise that maybe this would be all right. And then we had reinvented everything for the third time and we knew how to do it. And you think, okay, it stops being terrifying and it starts getting tedious, but it's still got a tinge of terror about it. It's interesting because obviously we're recording this on the 12th of March, which is not far off a year from the day we all had to shut our doors, which is the 23rd of March last year. And I remember really clearly the things you're talking about. That I remember really being very, very worried, terrified that I was going to lose my business. I remember thinking, I just have literally no idea how I'm going to navigate this. And like you say, this, the new normal, which I know is a phrase that's been banded around by everyone now, but it was certainly something we were discussing in the book trade time and time again. For those people that aren't in the trade, you know, a lot of our supply chain froze or collapsed. And so mm-hmm. things that we'd always taken for granted in terms of being able to get the products that we sell just stopped being able to appear. So we just had to keep trying different routes. And that in itself was just a whole level of stress but it's just interesting now looking back on it because we've done it we've all done it we've all survived and it's just very strange to think that that was all going on almost a year ago now I know it is incredible it is incredible and to answer your question about personally I mean I'm very lucky my kids are well my daughter lives in London she's working she has her job still my son's a student in Staffordshire 
My husband and I live in London and we have a nice working environment. I had my vaccination this week. so Oh, amazing. I know, showing how old I am. <laughs> so we're good. And I think the team at the BA are pretty well situated and have worked incredibly hard. So I think, yeah, a few of us have had COVID actually through the course of the last 12 months. At least three colleagues have had it, oh, wow. if not more. So, it, you know, we've had that too and all of the normal vicissitudes of normal life. But people have coped remarkably well, really. Yeah, it's definitely going to be a year we're never going to forget. <laughs> so this year, it's been funny actually talking to people as part of this podcast because I've found that people have responded very differently to the last year, the coronavirus pandemic, especially in terms of how they relax and unwind because of obviously how we're all now working. Some people are saying they've really turned to books a lot more. Others have said they've really struggled to do anything that involves creativity or, or thought process that's not just practical. How has it been for you? Have you found that you've been reading during this time or you've not been able to? Well, it's interesting. It's, like it's a game of two halves, that one, because I initially, for the first six months, I found it incredibly hard to read. I couldn't concentrate. And I was reassured when I used to see people or talk to people in the trade that lots of people seem to be saying the same thing. But Mm -hmm. it felt heartbreaking to me because it's always been my solace and it had always been where I'd gone for comfort and reassurance and escape. And I just couldn't do it. I couldn't hold anything else in my head except work, really, or the, the sort of predicament that we were all facing or processing what it was we were living through. So that was really tough. And mm-hmm. there were a few books. I mean, I'm a really fast reader and I read a lot and I would read on my train journey. So my commute had gone. And I think that was partly situationally why I wasn't reading as much. There were a few books that I would read. Maybe I read five books. But at Christmas time, actually, everything shifted. And I was, everyone, like everyone, really needing that Christmas holiday. And I read four or five books over the Christmas holidays and it's got me back into the groove, thank goodness. And all of this joy that I remember from reading all my life has returned to me, which is such a relief because you have that moment. I don't know if it happened to you. Were you able to read or were you? did you lose the... I had a really similar experience right at the beginning. I just couldn't. Did you? I kept trying to read and it, it wasn't working. What I found is when I started to be able to again, I had to go for things that were really light and didn't involve right. much thought process. So things that, you know, what you consider kind of like light summer reading, those kind of books. Now I've gone, <laughs> I've gone one extreme or the other. I still am really enjoying those for pure escapism, but I've also really been enjoying some very, very dark books. Oh, and I'm interesting. Not sure if that's a reflection on where we are. I mean, we interviewed Abigail Deed recently for the podcast. Her book Girl A was just phenomenal, and My Dark Vanessa, which came out a while ago, was also another big one that I really, really enjoyed. But those kind of books that have got some really kind of dark thoughts in them, but I don't know what that is. I don't know why I've been enjoying them so much, but I have. So it's a version sense. therapy, Sarah. But did yeah. that affect you? <laughs> did that affect you at work? I mean, did that have an impact on your book selling that you weren't able to read? Or had you got enough sort of stored knowledge that it was okay? Yeah, well, between us, because there we went down to a skeleton team, and between us we were covering enough, but it was having a bit of an impact. We had to really depend more on publishers and the reps to be able to get a bit more of an insight into some of the new books that were coming out. Because like yeah. you say, it's a big a hard job to get books in advance and, and devour them before we can sell them to other people but we're back now so it's fine. good <laughs> mm. what was the last book you read the last book I read was actually because I had my vaccination on Tuesday and I was not very well at all on Wednesday so I didn't work and I lay in bed for <laughs> much of that day and so I read two books that day one is a book called The Journalist and the Murderer by Janet Malcolm which is a book about journalism and the relationship between subject and writer 
which is really fascinating. She writes about a, a sort of notorious murder case in the US. She's American, academic and psychologist, I think. And she writes about the sort of troubled relationship between the writer and subject where you're doing a profile or research into someone, either as a journalist or as a book writer, and the trust and lack of trust and breach of trust that's involved in that. And really fascinating, incredibly insightful and thoughtful piece of work. It's very short, but just really thought provoking. And I also read a book called Breath by Tim Winton, who's an Australian writer, which was sent to me as part of my book subscription from Main Street Trading Company, which my husband bought me for my birthday last year. And I had tried him in the past and not particularly liked his writing, but I read The Shepherd's Hut earlier this year. That was one of my Christmas holiday books. And then this appeared in the post. So incredibly intense. It's a book about surfing, actually, which is so far from me. I can't tell you. <laughs> so it's incredibly intense book about the sea and about surfing and about it's a rite of passage. So they were very two very different books, but read on the same day. And I was struck by how I knew I was talking to you today. I thought, goodness, it wasn't deliberate in any way, but they were very contrasting experiences, but very thought-provoking in their own way. And I, I read more non-fiction now than I ever used to. When I was younger, I read almost exclusively fiction. But I do enjoy reading non-fiction much more now. I, I don't know, get a different window onto another mind at work. I think it's fascinating. So the Janet Malcolm, I would highly recommend. I'd ordered it in response to listening to a podcast, I think, and saw it on the shelf and thought, oh, I'll be meaning to read that and I'll give it a go. And it's extraordinary. What you say about nonfiction is interesting. I'm with you, actually. I didn't used to read as much nonfiction, and these days I do. And I don't know if that's just that the quality and quantity of nonfiction has just exploded or whether it's just something that you start to discover over time. I wonder, yeah. The Journalist and the Murderer sounds really interesting. I've not heard of it and definitely sounds like it's something worth a read. Yeah, no, it's definitely. So what's the last book you read? Am I allowed to ask you that? Yes. Um, she says. You're frantically looking around. So I've read it a few recently. And one of the really bad things about me and my job is that I am terrible at remembering the name of books. Me too. <laughs> it's just it's a, a, it's a professional. <laughs> it's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> so the book I last read was, I think it's called Bright Burning Things. I'm going to have to check that. It's a new book published by Bloomsbury. It's just come out. And it's, oh, so it's a fiction, fictional account about a woman who is struggling with alcohol addiction. And, you know, I said to you about reading some quite dark books. Yeah. This is, this is an example of one. So she's you're reading it from her standpoint and she's looking after her young son who's four or five years old. And it's how she starts to get her head around the fact that she might well have a problem and how she then deals with that. Oh, and my goodness. That sounds intense. Really dark material around a, a guy who's supposed to be her therapist and he starts crossing some lines. It was absolutely spellbinding. And I could not put it down. Mm. I'll be very upset if I've got the name of that book wrong. <laughs> That's a recommendation, though. You've just given me a recommendation. <laughs> yeah, absolutely fantastic. And it was really nice to see it because I, I had a proof of it and it was really nice to see it in the shop. And I went in this week. So it's, it's appeared and it's beautiful. So I'm really pleased. That it's there. That's great. So um, I have a theory about anyone that's got an interest in books or that reads a lot and my theory is that everybody that reads has got a book that has impacted them in some way and that could be professionally it could be personally and it could be a very small impact that has just stuck with them or it could be really major and life-changing do you have a book like that and if so what was it do you know I thought a lot about this question and I'm not sure there's a single book and when I was thinking about this 
it was more about the sort of collective of books that have made me who I am and the things that are, what might have changed the way I think. And so the nearest candidate, I think, is, and, and this is, again, this very much dates me, let's just say, as the Gnid Blyton thing, is um, The Magus by John Fowles. I know that's a, probably a seminal book for lots of people around my age. And I remember reading it as a student and I was an English literature undergrad, right? So I was reading all the time for work, as, as it was, because I was so studious. It was very hard to find the time to read for pleasure. And I remember picking it up and it just blew my mind because it was such an incredibly intricate, tricksy book. I mean, that's the whole point of it. It's a mysterious set on a Greek island and it's a rite of passage and it's about reality and illusion and fantasy and self-indulgence and all sorts of strange and wonderful things and and I think it made a, a huge impression on me and I read a lot of, of his stuff as a result of that but then there are, there are other books I was thinking I, I remember discovering Robertson Davis the Canadian writer mm-hmm. by overhearing a conversation in Waterstones in Richmond when a, the bookseller was recommending that book to another customer and I was just earwigging you know this conversation and It was The Rebel Angels, which is the first of the Cornish trilogy, I think. And that book sort of indirectly led me to, when I met my husband, we were both reading the same Robertson Davis book. This was some years later. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And he's Canadian. So, I mean, that's sort of broadly coincidental. But, you know, there are books like that that will just send you off on another trajectory. You don't even realise it at the time. And then there are other books. Cloud Atlas, I remember being incredibly impactful as well. I mean, it was just such an inventive takes a while to get into but once you're in it's just completely all absorbing and it has I think six different story arcs and they peak in the middle and fade in the second half and it's a work of absolute genius and I remember also I can't go through this without mentioning discovering George Saunders who I hadn't heard of until about three or four years ago much to my shame and I had him recommended to me with huge enthusiasm and energy by an American bookseller when I was over in the States at a at a book selling conference. And again, I just thought, how have I not read this man before? This man is is a genius and I love everything he's written. Again, incredibly inventive and playful and clever and thought-provoking. So I don't know, it's just, I would just find it impossible to come up with one book. So I hope that's an acceptable smorgasbord answer. Brilliant. I'm sorry for asking the impossible question. I, I like to ask it though, because I'm always interested in hearing the answer. It's a good discipline to <laughs> ask it. Have you got one? Is it, if it's your theory, have you got one? Do you one? know, you're the first person to ask me that. And I've been prepared <laughs> in case somebody did ask You've me. been waiting with it, 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 Like you say, it's an impossible question because there are so many things that you could choose and points in your life that it can impact. I think the one that made quite an impact on me is one called Anyone Can Do It, which is written by Sahar and Bobby Hashimi. I've just looked it up. They're the two people that founded Coffee Republic, okay, the coffee chain. And obviously I have nothing to do with the coffee industry. But this book was given to me by my mum when I came back from travelling, when I said to my family, I think I'm going to try and set up a bookshop because right. um, I used to work in a very different industry. But I was having massive imposter syndrome and I just didn't really think that I was going to be able to do it. So she gave me this and it's kind of a, you know, a business, you can do it, motivational book, but it's written in a really soft, light touch sort of way. Yeah. And it's just kind of, although obviously I'm not, I'm not comparing my independent bookshop to uh, the huge industry that Coffee Republic became, but it just had some really interesting principles that made me think, 
So did it give you permission to do it? Did it feel like it gave you the permission to do it, reading it? Yeah, I think it did. I think it, it helped me realise that they didn't have a clue when they started out. So it's kind of okay <laughs> to feel like that. <laughs> That's great. So that is actually, like that is an interventionist book then. I mean, that actually made the difference to you, made you feel brave enough to do it. Yeah, it did. And you probably won't believe this because it sounds a little bit like, oh, and everything comes round together. But I was reading that book when I came to the Book Sales Association for the first time when I did the, because you guys run a course, don't you, about running a book, yeah, yeah. running a bookshop. And I attended that course well before I had my shop and I was reading it at that point in time. So it was all How kind of funny. Kind of, mm-hmm. That's just another one of those little echoes across time, isn't it? That's very funny. Yeah. I've got it somewhere. I don't know where the book is. It's somewhere in my house, but it was it's only a small little thing, but yeah, it had quite an impact. You need to put it in a frame, put it up in your loo. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I was here. <laughs> so let's kind of come back to today. We still aren't out of the woods, although I think the country is kind of cautiously optimistic. There's a tiny light at the end of the tunnel in terms of being able to return to normal. Mm. What do you think are going to be the biggest challenges ahead of us as a book trade for the next year? As a book trade? Mm -hmm. I mean, inevitably, I think the impact on retail and therefore, by extension, inevitably on book selling is there are waves that are going to crash to shore that are going to be painful. That's a terrible mixed metaphor. So I worry about the longer term impact. So I think by the end of this year, I worry that there will be casualties amongst booksellers. Mm-hmm. I mean, chain and independent, potentially. We've all heard James don't talk about the risk to water stones if business rates are not amended and you know the possibility that they might have to shut shops. And we certainly don't want water stones to suffer mm-hmm. through this because they're crucial to the ecosystem in the same way that the indies are. I think indies... My fear for the independent sector would be around uh, people losing confidence, I guess. You know, that they may have perfectly viable businesses, but they'll be just too battered to carry on. It's just too hard. So we're trying everything we can to shore up that confidence amongst booksellers and bring booksellers together so they can get confidence and reassurance from each other. I think small publishers are also going to be vulnerable because it's been really hard for them. The bigger publishers are incessantly telling us what a great year they've had, record profits, that can be hard to hear when the high street is shut, of course. I mean, Philip Jones said it last week in the books. If books might be sold in high quantities when there's a lockdown, but when bookshops are open, there'll be more books sold. And I think bookshops are so crucial mm-hmm. to the sort of provision of variety and books and that reading experience to consumers. And they're, they're going to be hungry for it when we come out of lockdown. They were last time and the time before. I have an optimism about the sort of behaviour shifts where people say that they're going to stop shopping online when they don't have to do it anymore. And already lots of booksellers reporting that consumers are saying they're deliberately not shopping on Amazon. And I think people understand what a high street looks like when it's compromised and they can now imagine what a high street will look like if the shops are not able to function. So my worry is retail catastrophe, but I do think that booksellers have, they've weathered so many storms in the past. They were the first into the Amazon firestorm. They've proved themselves fighters. You're resilient as a breed of people. Now more than ever, I think bookselling is full of entrepreneurs and bright, capable, hardworking, creative entrepreneurs. And I think if anyone's equipped to survive this, I think booksellers are. And booksellers are much respected in the retail trade, actually, as well as in the wider, more cultural space that we're part of, too. So, yeah, my worry is retail collapse, I guess, but I don't think that's going to happen. I just think we're going to have a pretty torrid 2021. And our job 
and working with our members together is to make sure that as few bookshops fall prey to that as possible, really. We need the industry to rally around bookshops to help to make that happen too. We can't do it on our own. You can't do it on your own. We've got publishers and agents and authors and the industry has to, we all have to pull together. I know that's a cliche, but it's never been truer. Mm, yeah, I agree. We have seen a lot of support from publishers, just speaking from my own personal experience, from publishers and authors, particularly through this. And I'm constantly astounded by how supportive all of our customer base is as well. Mm. I mean, we literally are chomping at the bits to be able to open our doors and really do hope that it's the last time we've had to do this because it's such a different experience selling books from behind closed doors and not being able to have people come in and do what we do best, which is recommend books. Do what you do best, yeah. You must get such energy from that, you know, that interaction with people who love books. And then, you know, when you press a book into someone's hand, that must be the best feeling in the world. Yeah, it is. And when you have those people then come back and specifically find you because you're the one that recommended that book they really like yeah. and they want another recommendation, it's the best feeling. Well, I mean, but that's exactly the reason you ask that question about the book that changed your life is, I mean, what a privilege to know that you're doing that. Probably every day you're doing that for someone. You're changing their life with the book that you're giving them. I mean, that's amazing. That's a pretty good job. It's a pretty good job. <laughs> Just before we go, what book do you think, if you had to recommend a book right now that you think everyone should read, is there a particular book or is that also an impossible question? Uh, I find this an easier question. And I think I have two answers. I can never just have one answer. <laughs> For the longest time until the American election in November, and still, I think, is it would still be my answer, is The Plot Against America by Philip Roth. And I spent five years saying that to anyone that would listen to me and giving it to anyone that would take it from me. They made it into a very good TV series as well, just at the end of last year. And it's a fictional account of Charles Lindbergh having won the American election and becoming NBA president, <laughs> becoming US president before the Second World War. So it's an alternative reality. America doesn't enter World War II. The US is run along fascist lines. And it's told through the prism of a, through the eyes of a Jewish family living in New York, obviously with Philip Ross, that being his stock and trade. And it's just an incredibly vivid and effective and convincing portrayal of what happens when a demagogue gets into the White House. And I became obsessed, like many, many people, you know, through the course of the last five years, what was happening with Trump. And it became my rally and cry that everyone should read this. And I think even now we should probably continue to tell everyone to read that book because it's a warning klaxon against what to avoid really and the other book for a very different set of reasons is a very recent book actually it's called Leonard and Hungry Paul mm -hmm. which I think was a real word of mouth success bestseller through the indie sector and it's written by Ronan Hessian he's an Irish writer and it's just a book for our times it's incredibly gentle nothing much happens it's a story of a relationship between two men with very ordinary lives and it's suffused with love and the joy that comes from human relationships. And it's just very, very simple. Quite a fat book, but utterly compelling and comforting. And I think it could only have been written probably <laughs> this time in our lives. And it was a great balm to the soul. So they're very different books, but again, two answers. Fantastic. Two recommendations. Thank you so much. Before we finish up, I just want to say, Thank you. I feel like I've said it a few times throughout this, but I can't emphasise enough how much I'd like to thank you on behalf of every bookseller, you and the team. The work that you guys do is so important and everything you've done for us the last year has been above and beyond. So thank you so much. And so, thank, thank you. you so much for coming on and being a guest on my podcast. I know you were a bit concerned about whether or not this was, <laughs> the whether or not you'd stand up to the authors that I've had on here, but I can tell you, you absolutely have. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. 
So thank you so much for taking the time. Well, it's been wonderful. I'm so pleased you asked me. Thank you very much. It's been great fun. All of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the Mostly Books website. This podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at Mostly Books in Abingdon. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review and subscribe because apparently it helps people find us.